0: Uh, For those of you who are watching, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church here in Queens, New York City. And wherever you are gathering from and watching this from, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on our New Life website, whether it's on Facebook, uh, or later on in the podcast, it's great to have you with us. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Job, chapter 3 today. We're continuing our Lenten season. This is the second week of Lent, a time of preparation, a time of fasting, a time of repentance a time where we offer our own brokenness to the living God in anticipation of the resurrection. Now, before I get into my message today in Job chapter 3, I actually want to offer a pastoral word about the violent and increasing attacks on Asian Americans in our city and throughout this country. One of the sad and infuriating byproducts of the pandemic has been the racism that's been aimed at our asian brothers and sisters and the attacks that we're seeing on the news are abhorrent and increasingly becoming documented. It's not that these things have not happened before. They're increasingly becoming documented as well. And so for me, this is a matter of concern because, of course, every person is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated with love and kindness and fairness. But also, this is a matter of concern for me because our congregation has many people uh, from the Asian American community, And so at New Life, we are called in the name of Jesus to denounce with our words and with our lives the kind of discrimination that we're seeing, the kind of violence that we're seeing, the kind of racism that we are seeing, and and to recognize that there's no room for stereotypes and no room for xenophobia and no room for joking and what have you that we are called to be different. Let the church say amen in the chat, wherever you're at, say amen. Because we're called to be different and to model something of the kingdom of God. And so let us be a different kind of people, not participating in any kind of dehumanization, whether with our deeds or with our words. Let us be a different kind of people. And so I just wanted to offer that pastoral word for us as a community And anyone who is watching. Now, we are in a series focusing on the book of Job. We're in chapter three. We're calling it Job's Dark Night of the Soul. And it's a very long chapter of scripture here. I'm going to read a few verses from this chapter to get you a sense as to what Job is experiencing uh, in this moment of the story. Job chapter one, uh, chapter three, beginning at verse number one hear the word of the Lord. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above it, above, not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and other darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May darkness overwhelm it. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Let's pray together. Lord, as we contemplate on these words from Job, may you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, and may we encounter you by your grace this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It is A truth of human life and of the Christian experience that at one point or another in our journey we will hit a wall and by a wall I'm talking about a season of faith where we cannot trace God a season of faith where it seems as if God is distant a season of faith where our Bible reading and our praying does nothing for us and it's helpful to know how common our struggles are Consider the story of a woman named Agnes. From the time she was a young girl, Agnes believed in God. But not only believed in God, she was on fire for God. She wanted to do great things for God, and she would write things in her journal that said something to the effect of, I wanna love Jesus as he has never been loved before. Agnes had an undeniable calling. She wrote in her journal these words, My soul at present is in perfect peace and joy. She experienced such a union with God that was so deep and so continual that it seemed like a rapture. And then she left her home to become a missionary. She wanted to give this love out to the world around her. But when she left to be a missionary, God left her. Or at least... That's how it felt to her. She would have different kinds of words that she would write in her journal now, that she had become a missionary. She would not write about the continual sense of intimacy that she had with God, but she would write these other words in her journal. Words that said, where is my faith? Deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain? I have no faith. I utter words of community prayers and try my utmost to get out of every word the sweetness it has to give. But my prayer of union is not there any longer. I no longer pray. Agnes still worked. She still served. She still smiled. But she spoke of her smile as a mask that would conceal and be a cloak over her pain. And this inner darkness continued year after year, decade after decade, for nearly 50 years, because for her, God was just absent. And such was the secret pain of this woman named Agnes, who is better known to us as Mother Teresa, or Saint Teresa of Calcutta. Mother Teresa wrote those letters in her journals that were intended just for her spiritual directors on the torment of her soul. But after her death, those letters became public. And those letters surprised many people when they read those words coming from Mother Teresa. Many prominent atheists thought that Mother Teresa had lost her faith. Others had believed that she had experienced clinical depression, but what people of deep faith know is that Mother Teresa at that point hit a wall. Another word to describe this wall is with John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. And at the core of the dark night of the soul is this sense of the absence of God. The dark night of the soul essentially asks this question, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of us at some point will go through some kind of wall. This is actually what we talked about this past week in our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course where we talk about the wall. And the idea is that if you do not respond to the walls that you face, you will be enclosed by other walls that will trap you in that kind of existence. Now, we struggle with this dark night of the soul because of the language that we often use to describe Christianity, the language that we often use to describe the spiritual life. All of the metaphors that we use to describe the spiritual life and relationship with Jesus are often helpful, but they have their limits, which is why we need multiple metaphors to help us understand the life of faith, especially when problems come our way. But for many of us, we often have singular metaphors that explain what it means to live in this world and follow Christ. For some of us, one of the metaphors that we use is that we see Christianity very simply as a decision. And so we check the box, and we think this is what it means to be a Christian. I made a decision to follow Jesus. I made a decision to follow God, and I get the benefits therein. I get forgiveness of sins, I, don't have, I go to heaven when I die, I can, can experience the presence of God in a fresh way right now. And so when this is the, the controlling metaphor to understand the spiritual life, we often get confused when difficult things happen to us. We often get confused when we are faced with obstacles because we believe I made a decision things should go right at this point there should not be obstacles in my path i'm trying to do the right thing but christianity as a decision is a helpful metaphor but it's an incomplete metaphor another metaphor that we use is that we see christianity as a battle that it's always about a battle it's always about a fight that we are in and yes the bible names the enemy of our souls in satan Paul talks about powers and principalities, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in evil places. There is a battle going on around us, but Christianity is not all a battle. What begins to happen if we see everything as a battle is every time there's a shortcoming, every time there's a challenge, every time there is a test, we blame the devil for it. And we fail to see that there's sometimes that God tests us. There's sometimes that God allows us to go through particular things that everything is not the devil. But if everything is seen in the context of a battle, we will miss the gifts and the invitation that God has for us. And so, yes, it's a helpful image, but it's an incomplete image. The third image that I think is perhaps most helpful for our time is that Christianity is a journey. That there are ups and there's downs. That there are times when there's praise that comes from our our mouth and there are times where there are tears flowing down our eyes. There are times when everything is full of joy and everything is full of uh, pain the next moment. Christianity is a journey of ups and downs, of twists and turns, of obstacles and walls. And as part of the journey, we often hit a dark night of the soul for most of us this dark night of the soul this the walls that we experience comes through a divorce through a job loss through a cancer diagnosis through a car accident a shattered dream a betrayal a disillusioning church experience an inability to get pregnant a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled a dryness in our joy and in our relationship with God and this past week I've, I've, I've noticed how the dark night of the soul has impacted many within our community because the dark night of the soul is something that might happen for a week it might happen for a month it might happen for a year a decade but we all experience these dark nights This past week, I I really felt burdened by God to make a lot of phone calls to our community just to check in with some people to see how they're doing. And almost every person that I called in our congregation this past week is experiencing some dark night of the soul. I spoke to one family who, one of the family members, is having a really difficult battle with COVID this past week. I spoke and prayed to another new lifer who, over the past four months, has lost four people, including her parents. I spoke to another new lifer who lost her job after many, many years, and she's trying to figure out what the next steps are, and she cannot seem to discern the presence of God in the midst of her life. In this particular season, many people are disoriented, just like Job, in chapter 3. When we get to chapter 3 in the book of Job, we see how Job responds in a different way. In chapter 1 and 2, Job responds in a particular way to the absolute tragedy that came his way. At the end of chapter 1, Job tears his robes after learning that his children have died. After learning that he's lost all of his possession, he tears his robe and he shaves his head as a sign of lament. And he throws himself on the ground as a sign of powerlessness and worshiping God in that moment, crying out to God in that moment. And then in chapter 2, after having a very challenging conversation with his wife, in which she says, Job, in light of all this, you should just curse God. Job responds in a different way to his wife, where he says these words, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. It's after this very difficult conversation, and after this amazing statement of faith, that Job is visited by three friends. They respond to his grief and his pain by sitting with him for seven days, saying nothing. This is what we learned about last week. They are just present with him in his pain for seven days. These friends, this is their finest moment in the book of Job. And after seven days, Job begins to speak. What would you imagine Job would say here? In light of the first two chapters of how he's responded by calling upon God, by offering incredible faith, Job has shown remarkable restraint. Job has shown incredible hope and incredible faith. Surely Job will come out of the seven days of being with his friends and silent with, with a word of praise in his mouth. Surely we expect Job to say, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. But instead of offering those words of praise, Job begins to share words that you will rarely hear in a church service. You'll never hear it at a testimony service. Job offers words that will make most Christians cringe. Because in this moment, Job begins to offer a level of honesty and expression to his grief and disorientation in his soul. Instead of saying, praise the Lord, O my soul, after seven days of silence, the first thing that Job says are these words. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness, may God above not care about it, may no light shine on it, may gloom and utter darkness claim it once more, may a cloud settle over it, may darkness overwhelm it. Hear this, this is the anti-Genesis 1 story. In Genesis 1 there's darkness and God speaks light into it. But Job is so overcome with grief, he's saying, can we just rewind it all? And instead of turning it from light to darkness, from darkness to light, let it go from, from light to darkness. Job is in incredible grief. And the, this, the, the difference between chapter 1, 2, and 3 is so stark and drastic that many commentators have wondered, is this the same guy? How can he go from... Throwing his face down to the ground in worship. Saying, shall we receive good from God, but not bad from God? How can he go from all that to this? And Some scholars have wondered, is this the same guy? But it is the same guy. And this reminds us that the way we grieve often manifests in different ways. And in different seasons and in different days. Job is experiences the traumatic grief of loss and tragedy and offers honesty to God. And we learn a couple of things in this story that I want to hang my thoughts on today. Two things for us as we are in this Lenten season. Two things for us as we are in this pandemic. Two things for us as we're still trying to navigate the moment that we are in. Two things in Job chapter three. The first thing I want to offer to you is that Job demonstrates that God is after our honesty, not after our perceived notions of holiness. Job demonstrates that God is after our honesty, not our perceived notions of holiness. We are often raised to hear the words, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's one of the parenting things that people all over the world say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. And the tragedy is we have taken that bit of advice and applied it in our relationship with God. And we believe if I don't have anything nice to say to God or anything nice to say in prayer, I better not say anything at all. But it'd be good to learn from the author Eugene Peterson who said that that prayer is not about being nice before God... It's about being honest before God. But we often understand holiness, notions of holiness, a perceived right relationship with God to be marked by a couple of things. We often believe that to be in right relationship with God means that I'm supposed to just stoically embrace the trials that come my way. In other words, it doesn't bother me. How are you? I'm all right. I'm, I'm okay. It doesn't faze me. Or our notions of holiness or right relationship with God is that our lives should always be marked by great happiness and joy. How are you? I'm blessed, brother. I'm doing all right. Well, you you just were in a car accident, but I'm blessed anyway. It's all right. And so we believe that these notions of holiness are about being stoically unaffected by life or perpetually happy in the midst of life. And as a result, we're not honest before God with what everything is coming our way. For so many of us, we have been taught that grief and sadness are sins to repent of. And so consequently, churches are often places where we hide our grief in the name of joy. Places where we conceal our pain in the name of praise. Communities where we overlook our wounds in the name of strong faith. And as a result, we are lying to ourselves and lying to one another. We live carrying burdens of grief and no place to share it. We put so much of our, on ourselves to carry ourselves through. And we miss the gift of being honest before God, the gift of lamenting. It was Ron Rollheiser who said that too often, we, what we have dreamed for our lives can never be. Thus, we have a choice. We can spend the rest of our lives angry, trying to protect ourselves against something that has already happened to us, like death or unfairness. Or we can grieve our losses, abuses, and deaths, and through that, eventually attain the joy and delights that are, in fact, possible for us. Job is honest before the living God. And what we find here, even in his desolation and disorientation, is a profound act of holiness where he's lifting everything up to God. What we need as the people of God is a space to be honest, what we need is a people to hold us. What we need is a community to surround us in solidarity. What we need as the church is to be reminded that God is not offended by your grief, that God is not offended by your questions, that God is not af- offended and bothered by your doubts. That God longs to be invited into those places. And so prayer then becomes, a a great definition of prayer is lifting mind and heart to God. What is prayer? It's the act of lifting mind and heart to God. That we are brutally honest with God. That when we're grieving, what do we pray? We pray our grief. When we're sad, we pray our sad. When we're anxious, we pray our anxiety. What is prayer? The lifting of mind and heart to God. We don't wait until everything is sanctified and we have holy language to lift it up to God. No, no, we pray as we are with what's going on inside of us. And we must be reminded of that as we read the book of Job in chapter 3. And so scripture encourages the externalizing of grief, not the suppression of it. And so we learn in chapter 3 here, number 1, that God is after our honesty, not our perceived notions of holiness. But the second thing I want to leave you with really flows as an implication of this chapter. You're not necessarily going to see it right in the words of Job 3, but it serves as a powerful implication for our lives. Here's the second thing I want us to hold on to. We must read Job's story as an invitation to join those who are suffering. We must read Job's story as an invitation to join those who are suffering. When we read the book of Job, the the effect that it's to have on our lives is very simply, we are to move close to others by reading the book of Job. We need this chapter, chapter 3, because it helps us to be honest before God But it also helps us to experience and enter into the experience of others. Now, I realize when I read the book of Job and when I look at the world, that all of us watching this, all of us listening to this, have not suffered in the same way. Not all of us have experienced the same level of loss and trauma. Not all of us have carried the same burden of depression. Not all of us have had to endure tragedy on the same level. Not all of us grew up in neighborhoods that were filled with violence and drugs. Not all of us grew up in homes that were marked by abuse and perpetual fear. Not all of us experienced the loss of a child. Not all of us experienced the divorce of our parents. Not all of us experienced and were exposed to the tragedies of war. But the point of reading the book of Job, is not to compare our pain to others or to carry guilt that we have not suffered in the same way like others have. For whatever reason, some will suffer a great deal and for whatever reason, some might not suffer a great deal. But whether we have suffered personally or not, the call of the Christian life is to enter the suffering of others and to encounter the God who suffers with us. Now, I know this doesn't fit into your your five-year plan of living happily ever after, but the way of the cross is a way that opens us up to the suffering of the world so that we can encounter the living God who suffers with us and receive the strength for the journey. This is why we need to read the Psalms on a regular basis. For many years, I would read the Psalms, and I read the Psalms almost every day. And when I would read the Psalms in the past, I would focus on the Psalms that only reflected how how I was feeling. And because I was typically a, a chipper, optimistic kind of a person, I just loved the Psalms of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I mean, I have all of these wonderful Psalms that I read with great joy. But there was a time in my life where I would come across a psalm of disorientation, a psalm of lament, a psalm when David is angry, puzzled, disoriented. Lord, where are you? And I'd go, that doesn't reflect my experience. Let me find something else. And I would change the page looking for a psalm of praise. And when I would find it, I'd go, ah, that's what I want to say before God. But then something shifted in me because I realized that the Psalms were given to us, not just for us, that the Psalms were given to us to help us enter into the experience of someone else. Because although you might not be feeling lament and disorientation, doesn't mean that somebody else in some other part of the world or down the block or in your own home is feeling this way. And so I have learned to pray those words that don't reflect my current reality because it becomes a, t- a prayer of solidarity. It becomes a moment for intercession. It becomes a moment of compassion. It becomes a moment to say, Lord, I might not be suffering like this, but plenty of people are suffering like this, and I want to join my voice and join my life to them. And so we see what the core of the spiritual life is. The core of the spiritual life in following Jesus is to pay attention to God, pay attention to myself, and pay attention to others, especially in times of great suffering and pain. And so when we read the book of Job, some of us go, Man, uh, sorry for him. Let me find something else. He had a bad day. But instead, we should go, my Lord, there are lots of people feeling that way today. And may I join my heart to them. May I join my voice to theirs. May I be a good gift, even in the privacy of my own home, spiritually joining myself to those who have suffered. That's what we're trying to do when we're reading the book of Job. That's what we're trying to do when we're reading the book of Psalms. That's what we see fundamentally in the person of Jesus Christ as Christians our understanding of suffering is to be fueled and formed and aided by our Lord Jesus Christ because our Lord understands suffering our Lord understands taking on the burden of sin on his body and suffering in our place The good news of Christ on the cross is when he suffers on the cross, he does so in a way that puts an expiration date on our suffering. That because he's died, he died for us, because he rose from the dead, all of our suffering and pain will have an expiration date on it. That he's making all things new. That one day he'll he'll join heaven and earth together in a way that we've never seen before. Jesus has done something on the cross in his suffering for us. But Jesus on the cross also shows us what it means to suffer, what it means to cling to God. On the cross, I love that Jesus is honest before the Father. As he's being crucified, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice the words that Jesus doesn't say from the cross. I love that chorus, you know, you're a good, good father. Yeah, I love that song, but Jesus doesn't pray that from the cross. He prays, You, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I love that Jesus is brutally honest on the cross, showing us what it means to be human. That if the Son of the living God can offer his lament and disorientation and grief before the Father, so can you. So can I. Jesus is brutally honest. But I love that the last word that Jesus offers from the cross is not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The last words that he offers from the cross is, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in that moment, Jesus shows us what true faith is. What is true faith? Faith is clinging to God when experience says that God is not there. And so the invitation for us, in the midst of our disorientation, in the midst of our pain, The pain of loss, the pain of a divorce, the pain of a bad diagnosis, the pain of economic troubles, the pain of a global health crisis. The invitation for us is to be brutally honest before God and at the same time clinging to the God who is with us. Listen, for some of you right now, you're facing such a level of grief and loss that you're wondering, Where is God? I don't feel him. I don't see him. I don't hear him. And I can't promise you that in your time of grief, you will see God and hear God. It's often the case that grief clouds it all out. But what I can say and announce to you, and what we announce every single Sunday as the people of God, is that although you might not be able to feel him and experience him, God is closer to you than you are to yourself that the crucified one is with you, that he suffers alongside you, and that he offers us grace for the moment we are in. And so, yes, let's be like Job and be like Jesus, being honest before God. And let's experience and find ourselves clinging to the God who is with us, even though experience says he's not. That is the life of faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, it's so easy for us to allow our grief to cloud out your presence in our lives. And this is what it means to be human. But Lord, I declare to those experiencing loss and grief that you are with them and that you would make your presence known, Lord in ways that confounds our minds. And Lord, I also pray for those of us who may not necessarily be disoriented, who may not necessarily be experiencing a dark night of the soul, who might be experiencing actually a great season in their life. May we enter into the suffering of others looking for God, looking to be a good gift, looking to be present with those who suffer, suffer from injustice, suffer through illness, suffer in a myriad of ways, although we might not have been touched by it, let us enter in and join those who are in pain. Teach us how to pray for people, how to encourage people, how to make phone calls and write letters, how to be a good gift to a suffering world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As we close our service, we are called to a life of honesty and a life of empathy, a life where we join ourselves to those in pain. And one of the ways that we experience this is in conversation and in the receiving of prayer. At the end of our service here, there's two invitations. One, to have a space to process. One of our pastors will be leading a sermon discussion time. And you can find that link on our website there or on the YouTube or Facebook link. And feel free for about 30 minutes to join a conversation, to talk about what's resonating and how the Lord is speaking to you. Sometimes we just need a space to externalize and connect with others, especially in grief. so feel free to join us in that sermon discussion. Another invitation we have for you is our, our prayer room. If you need someone to pray for you, our prayer team would love to pray for you, to speak words of encouragement and words of healing over you in your time of great pain, so feel free to click that link. But I also want to offer an invitation to those of you who've never trusted in Jesus Christ. who's who's never surrendered to him. And on the screen there, you'll see there's a number to to text yes to Jesus. If you're sensing that God is calling your name, that you need healing, forgiveness, salvation, you're tired of doing things on your own, you're longing for, for the life of God to flow in you and through you, let us help you there feel free to send a text message there. One of our pastors will be in touch with you this week to follow up and help you on your journey. As we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing wherever you're at. In your kitchen, your living room, your bedroom, in your, parked in your car, watching from another part of the world, wherever you're at, open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. Our world is marked with cursing. Our world is marked by often so much pain, but we leave every gathering being reminded that the Lord longs to bless us and show His favor towards us. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit offering your honesty before God and joining your life to those who are suffering, discerning the presence of God in that place. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the healing name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all. See you next week.